All right, let's begin with a word of prayer. Um, Heavenly Father, we come to uh, this Sunday school class, uh, and we want to read the scripture. We want to uh, know what we're reading, uh, not simply so that we can boast, uh, but so that we can know you, because we know that you, uh, we know you through the scriptures, that the scriptures, all of it is about you, and we pray all this in Christ's name. Okay. All right, so we're continuing in our series. Um, we're looking at the disciplines of grace, right, the means of grace. And uh, we're going to, the first means of grace is uh, reading the Bible. And uh, this is the second class. And uh, just to review from last week, let's review some vocabulary that we picked up. Um, Who can define this word for me? Hermeneutics. Who remembers? What does hermeneutics mean? Anyone? Do you remember hearing the word hermeneutics? <laughs> Jeff? It's the, uh, it's the uh, study of how to interpret scripture. Good, yeah. It's interpretation, right? The art of interpretation. Ter- okay, and if you guys remember, hermeneutics consists of two parts. What are those two parts that we learned? Jeff, do you remember? Two words. Exegesis and application, right? All right, so let's define these two words. What is exegesis? I'm really glad... The class made an impact. Yeah. Yes. Translate scripture words. No, no, good try though. What's exegesis? Can you remember? Jeff, do you remember? words? No. Exegesis is finding out what the author meant. Okay, it's the original meaning. Okay, or intent. Alright? So what, when the author wrote what he wrote, what did he actually mean? What, did he act- what was he actually trying to say in the original context, all right? And so what is application then? Yes? Um, the purpose of it. The purpose of it? No, you can fit that into exegesis. What's application? You want to give it another stab, Brooke? <laughs> no? Does anyone remember? Yes, that's right. So exegesis is the original meaning, and the application is what it means for us. Right? It's what uh, what uh, Wilbur, what Wesley, you were saying, right? Is to translate how it applies to us in our life, in our situation. Okay. So, any quick questions on on this? Um, and remember, last week we talked about. Why exegesis is so hard? Exegesis is very difficult. Why is it so hard? 
What's the big barrier that makes it so difficult when we execute scripture? That's right. There's a huge time gap. And so therefore, how do we overcome that time gap? Marianne, how do we overcome the historical gap? Yes. We need to put in the sweat labor. We need to study, right? Just like you study Shakespeare, just like you would study any academic subject in school, the Bible is worthy of your study, okay? All right. So now we're going to get to the how do we, the nitty-gritty of how do we actually read the Bible. And the first thing you need to realize is that the Bible consists of different kinds of genre. Who has heard of this word before? Can I have a show of hands? Who has heard of genre? All right. Can anyone define genre? Um, it's uh, different sections and subjects. Yeah, that's a very, very good uh, uh, description. Genre is different classes or different categories of, of a kind of work, right? So let me give you an example, right? We all know that there are different genres of movies, right? Like, what are certain kind of genres? There's comedy, right? There's action flicks. There's a drama, horror movies. And the thing about genre is that it gives us rules and strategies on how you can interpret, how you can do uh, hermeneutics when you're watching the movie. So, for example, right, let's say you're watching a movie and it's a funeral scene, right? If it's a drama, you know that you, you should be crying, you should be tense, you know, something terrible has happened, right? If, uh, if, um, let me see what else... If it's a comedy, right, let's say uh, it's a funeral scene and it's a comedy, you know that any second now, something funny is going to happen, right? Maybe a clown is going to run through the funeral scene, right? Or if it's a funeral scene and you know it's an action movie, you know at any second now, this truck and car race is going to race through or some kind of huge ball is going to come crashing down or some kind of big action, right? Or a bulldozer. Or a bulldozer, that's right. And so, depending on the genre, you know what to expect, you know what you're supposed to be feeling, you know the rules, right? And we all intuitively understand this concept of genre, all right? And so, genre is critically important. The Bible has different kinds of genre. And if we don't recognize this, uh, a lot of people try to read the Bible the same way, ignoring genre. And this is why there's enormous frustration, right? Because they, they use the exact same rules, they use the exact same principles, to read all the different genres and it just doesn't work, right? If you try to watch a romance movie or a horror movie like it's a comedy, you're going to be incredibly disappointed and confused and you're not going to know what's going on. All right? Any quick questions or thoughts or comments? All right. So I uh, included certain uh, examples of different genres in the Bible. So for example, we have law. Um, You shall not murder. That's pretty straightforward, right? But the complexity is, how do we know which laws apply in the New Testament? All right? What about poetry? Psalm 42, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. And so one of the things about uh, poetry genre, or uh, the Psalms, is that it uses these metaphors and images. Right? You're not supposed to you know, take these images too literally, but you're supposed to understand how... Um, the parallel works, right? So just like a deer panting for water, so our souls pant for God, right? Um, let's skip down to prophetic writings. 
Joel chapter 2. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Right? Very much unlike historical narratives, which we're going to talk about today, prophetic writings uses these dramatic images. Um, it uses hyperbole. And we're not supposed to take things too literally because is the prophet saying that the sun will actually turn to darkness, that the moon will actually turn to blood? We're supposed to understand what these images mean. It means the end of this world, right? It means the destruction and judgment day, right? And then finally, look at epistles. Um, let's have Kevin. Can I have you read Galatians 1? Oh, Yeah. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserving of him, called you in the grace of Christ, and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you to not to deserve the gospel of Christ. Yeah, so one of the rules of reading epistles is that Paul, or whoever the uh, epistle writer is, is always addressing a particular problem in the church. And so our task is to figure out what is the problem that he's addressing. Right? So, for example, Galatians, in Galatians, you don't understand what Paul's talking about unless you understand what the trouble is, what this other gospel is. And if you don't know what the, what the other gospel is, you have no idea what Paul's talking about. All right? so, um, so this is just a quick overlook of all different kinds of genres. Any quick questions before we go on? Any thoughts, comments? All right. So now let's, we're, uh, we're going to cover biblical history today, genre, and then next week we're going to cover how do you read epistles. So how do you read biblical history, right? And so here is... Uh, a set of, of uh, four rules that I'm going to give you. And here's the first rule, the, the most important rule of all, which is that we need to understand that uh, the Bible is not a series of disconnected and random stories, but that it is one single great no, uh, story, right? So if we think of this as the whole of Bible history, a lot of times people read the stories individualistically, but we need to understand that it's one great story. And it begins really in Genesis 3.15. And what happened in Genesis 3.15? Remember that Adam and Eve fell. They partook of the forbidden fruit. And what does God say? God says that I will send a Savior. Right? And all throughout biblical history until Christ comes, God is giving us different pictures and different um, images of who that Savior is going to be. And so what we call this is, we call this redemptive history. And then therefore, each individual story is part of this grand narrative. Right? So for example, okay, we start with the story of Adam. Adam is a picture of Christ. Because Adam was put into the garden, and if he passes the test regarding the tree, all of humanity will enter into paradise. And that's a picture of Jesus, right? According to Paul in Romans 5. Jesus was placed in the garden. He was tested concerning a tree, which is the cross. And unlike Adam, he passed the test. And therefore, he saves all those who are under him, and they enter paradise. What about Abraham, the story of Abraham? Remember Abraham and the story of Isaac. God said to Abraham, take your only beloved son up to the mountain and sacrifice him. And that's a picture of the fact that God the Father will have to sacrifice his only son in order to save humanity, right? What about uh, the story of Joseph? 
the story of Joseph is that he was sold and betrayed by his own into slavery, but because of that, he was able to save his family and save the entire whole world. And that's a picture of Jesus, right? What about the story of Moses? Moses is the story of a leader who led his people out of slavery to the promised land. Now, again, that's a picture of Jesus. And on and on we go, right? You, you talk about Joshua, who's a great general. You talk about, we're studying uh, Judges. You're talking about David, Solomon. Down through the list, all of these are pictures of who Christ is. And so that is the primary meaning in any historical narrative that you read. The primary meaning is Christ, okay? That is the master paradigm. If you read the story of Joseph, if you read the story of uh, Joshua, and you're trying to figure out what does the story mean without remembering this grand historical, redemptive history, it's going to be really confusing to you. And you're going to read it in a kind of moralistic way, disconnected from everything else. Right? Um, And then, the secondary meaning, which a lot of people jump to immediately is that these are examples for us. Right? So when you see Abraham going up in faith to Mount Moriah to sacrifice his Isaac, that's an example for us. When you see Joseph right, uh, trusting God even though everything seems to be going wrong, that's a picture for us. But a lot of people jump immediately to the secondary meaning. Right? As an example... But you have to first first understand the primary meaning, right? And this way of reading scripture, right, where everything is under this one giant redemptive history, the formal name of it, if you guys are interested, is called covenant theology. Some of you have probably heard that name. That's what it is. Because from Genesis 3.15 to Revelation is one story, one covenant of grace. Okay, so let's look at an example of this. Um, let's read First Samuel. Can I have Jeff read First Samuel? This is the story of David and Goliath. Very famous story. Everyone knows it, right? So let's apply this principle, this first rule. When Goliath the Philistine arose and came and came to David, David ran quickly toward the battle lines to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone. And slowly, he struck the Philistine on his forehead. Stone sank into his forehead and fell on his face to him. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling with a stone. He struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no stone sword in the hand of David. Alright. What is the story of David and Goliath about? A lot of people think that the story is this. We are David. And we're this scrappy little guy. And we're facing all these big difficulties, the Goliaths of this world. Maybe your Goliath is asking a girl out. Maybe your Goliath is getting that job or getting into school. And so you, like David, have to, you know, just puff up your courage and, and, and see if you could defeat that big Goliath. And look at David. Look at how courageous he is. Is that the first and primary meaning of the story? Absolutely not. David is a picture of Christ. And here is David facing an overwhelming, impossible-seeming enemy, Goliath, who is a picture of sin and death. 
And here is David as the sole representative of the, of the people of Israel. And whatever David does, the people will benefit. Right? If David loses, Israel will go down in defeat. If David wins, the people enjoy the benefit of the victory. Right? And so here is David. And because he wins, he is our king. And that's a picture of what Christ does. Right? And then only secondarily do you turn to the next meaning, which is that David is also a picture of faith. Does that make sense? You have to first, first read this in any, in any and every story. Any thoughts or comments or questions? Now, how can we do this? You know, what's the justification for doing this? Right? Are we just being, you know, are we just imagining things? Because where does it say in Scripture, you know, that David is a picture of Christ? Well, let's read Luke chapter 24. Uh, how about Burke? Can I have you read it? Read it out loud with a loud voice. And Jesus said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? The beginning with Moses and all the prophets, and interrupted them in all the scriptures and things concerning them. Yeah, look at 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Christ interpreted to them, his disciples, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. What is Jesus telling us? That every single story, every chapter, every hero, every villain, every uh, episode is really the story of salvation. It's the story of Christ. It's the story, it's the history of redemption. And therefore, we can read the Old Testament creatively and imaginatively so that we're constantly looking for pictures of Christ. That doesn't mean that we abuse things. You know, I, uh, one of the classic examples is the story of Rahab uh, in the book of Joshua. Rahab uh, lets down the spies, uh, Joshua and Caleb, down her window with a red rope. People say, oh, that red rope represents the blood of Christ. That's like, you know, going way crazy, right, with our imagination. But... Um, but because we know that every story is about Christ, we can therefore look for pictures of Christ, right? And for, the, uh, for those of you who um, have been said, uh, who've been going to small group and looking at the book of Judges, you know that that's the way we've been reading Judges, right? That every judge is a picture of Christ. Uh, and, you, and if you've been listening to me preach through, uh, for example, the story of Jacob, you know that this is what, this is how I interpret Scripture. And a lot of people say, you know, we're a gospel-centered church. What does it mean to be gospel-centered? One of the meanings of to be gospel-centered means that we read the Bible with the gospel as the central paradigm. That the gospel is in the story of Abraham, Moses, and Joshua, and so forth. Okay, every story is really just the gospel. But different ways, different aspects, different perspectives. Any questions or comments or thoughts? Clarifications? No? Okay. So is that clear to everyone? Does that make sense? All right. We want to read the Old Testament in a gospel center way. Alright, so that's rule number one. Rule number two, very closely related, is that we should not look for moral examples, but we're supposed to look for the grace of God. Okay? That's the gospel paradigm. Um, there are kind of two ways to read the Bible. There's a moralistic way to read the Old Testament. 
And then there's a gospel-centered way. Okay? And in the moralistic way, whatever story you read, you're always looking for the good guy and the bad guy, right? Like Aesop's fables. Like Disney movies. Who's the princess? Who's the villain? Right? And what are you supposed to do in Aesop's fable? What are you supposed to do with uh, Disney movies? You're supposed to imitate the good guy, right? Follow the good guy, and then avoid the mistakes of the bad guy. Right? And a lot of people read the Old Testament historical narratives like that. Who's the good guy? Who's the bad guy? You know what the problem with that interpretation is? Two problems. Number one, very, very hard to identify who is the good guy a lot of the times, right? And problem number two, when you read the Bible in this way, you're reading it moralistically, and you're reading it without grace in mind, without the gospel in mind, and you're reading it as a self-salvation, that you can earn your way into God's favor. The gospel-centered way is that the his, uh, that biblical history is a story of broken and lost people God has mercy on. Okay? That God uses broken and lost people. So, let's look at uh, Genesis 29 as an example. Uh, Mur, can I have you read that? Jacob did so Right about uh, two months ago or a month and a half ago, I preached on this story, right? The story is that Jacob goes to Laban. He loves Rachel, but he ends up being married because Laban tricks him. He ends up being married to Leah first, and then he marries Rachel as well. Now, who is the good guy in this story? Is it Jacob? If Jacob is the good guy, is he, are we supposed to follow what he does? If you look at the story of Jacob, you realize that there are no good guys. Everyone is out for themselves. Everyone is thinking about themselves. Jacob is only thinking about getting his beautiful Rachel. Laban is only thinking about tricking Jacob and getting rid of his ugly daughter Leah. Leah and Rachel, they're only thinking about themselves selfishly. And yet, and yet, through this broken and messed up family, the most dysfunctional family you'll ever see, God has grace on them. And through them, God continues his promise. So that remember, through Leah, God continues the promise line who will eventually lead to Jesus Christ, right? Um, I remember this kind of hilarious uh, humorous story. And, and this is the reason why I mentioned this story. is because um, a lot of people read you know, scripture moralistically. And uh, my mother-in-law, I remember uh, when uh, Christina and I were dating, she said, you should, give, uh, you should give me a bride price, right? You should pay a sum of money uh, to me in order to marry my daughter. And she said, the reason, and here's the proof, Jacob had to give a bride price for Rachel, right? So we should follow what uh, the Bible says we should follow the, Jacob's example. And, uh, of course, you know, I, I should not respond to that, but I just wanted, I, I was dying inside to say, oh, so I'm Jacob. Doesn't, doesn't that mean I get two wives? 
Right? <laughs> we're supposed to follow Jacob, right? You cannot read the Bible in that way. The story of Jacob is a story of a broken and lost person who nevertheless God shows grace on and nevertheless God uses so that through Jacob, Christ is born. Yes. Okay. At the same time, we can learn how not to live. Oh, of course, right. I mean, right. we can draw moral wisdom from it, even though it's not do as Jacob did, or do as Abraham did. Or be as Abraham, yeah. We all kill people and, you know, right. the things that we never... Right. But, I mean, we can learn from it still. Like, obviously, this is not the way we would want to go. Absolutely, know? Thank yeah. God for grace. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. I think the primary meaning is that God shows grace to broken people. Yeah. And then the secondary meaning is, sometimes there are examples of faith, like Abraham, but sometimes they're examples of what we should not do. So Jacob almost always is an example of what we should not do. Because Jacob is just a story of a guy just stumbling through life, you know, making a mess, and yet God shows grace. All right. Uh, any quick questions or comments? That was a great comment. Thank you. Any thoughts? All right. Uh, rule number three. Historical narratives illustrate what is taught explicitly elsewhere. Um... So the thing about biblical history, um, historical narratives, is that a lot of times it will describe something happening and then not really give you um, a clear-cut explanation of whether it is good or bad, right? So, for example, uh, what does the Bible say? What does the Ten Commandments say? It says, do not commit adultery. That adultery is an evil, it's a sin against God. And... A lot of times what biblical history does is it describes people committing adultery and it shows you the absolute devastation of what happens when you do that sin, of when you live a life contrary to God's law. And even though in the narrative itself it doesn't explicitly necessarily say, and David sinned, or it doesn't say, and David broke this law by committing adultery. It just simply describes adultery, and yet we can see, just through the agony of what David goes through, why it's wrong. Um, right, so let me read to you Second Samuel. Oh, actually, can I Kay read that real quick? So David sent messengers and took Bathsheba, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I'm pregnant. Yeah, I think a lot of times readers get really upset, right? Because first of all, they're reading in a moralistic way. And so in their mind, David's a good guy. And they're like, wait a minute, why is David doing this? And then they're waiting for scripture to say, this is evil, this is wrong. And it doesn't say it. You know, it doesn't say it very explicitly. It doesn't say it very clearly. And people get very upset. They're like, they don't understand. Wait a minute. So I guess if you're a king, it's okay. Or I don't know, you know. And what we're supposed to understand is David is doing something terribly wrong. And we see the incredible devastation. But we're supposed to read the history in light of what is clear elsewhere in the law, in the epistles. Tommy, did you have a question or comment? No? Oh, okay. I thought I saw your hand. Okay. Um, and we're going to see that, if you guys are in a small group, we're going to see that uh, in the coming weeks, we're going to uh, see the story of Jephthah, right? And Jephthah sacrifices his daughter. And um, nowhere in the story do you see the text say what Jephthah did was wrong. And so a lot of people get upset. Oh my gosh, is this right? Is this wrong? Was this a good thing? And you're supposed to be able to understand that it is wrong, but you're not supposed to... It, it, the history doesn't say it in so many words. Does that make sense? So in other words, you're supposed to read biblical history in light of law and epistles and other things that are clear. So it illustrates. It makes it vivid. Any thoughts or comments? 
don't know if I articulated that very clearly. All right, rule number four. Not every part of the narrative has its own point. Often the entire story, which can span several chapters, conveys a single point. In this sense, you have to read history patiently. Um, a lot of times, you have a single story which spans several chapters. So it might take you 30 minutes to read the entire story. And the whole point of that single story is really just to get across one message. But we're so trained to read the Bible and every single kind of like portion of the story, we're waiting, what's the message? What is the application? What is this trying to tell me? And a lot of times, those details are there just to add to the atmospherics. It's just to kind of layer on you know, the vivid imagery, but we're supposed to wait till we get to the end to draw up a conclusion. Does that make sense? And this, I think, frustrates a lot of people when they read uh, biblical history because they're so impatient, they want to know, what does this mean? So, for example, uh, uh, the story of David and Goliath. Um, Melissa, can I have you read for a second? When he saw David and Cyrus, he put a helmet of bronze on his head, clothed him with a coat of nails, and David struck his sword over his and he tried in vain to go, for he had not touched with him. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not touched with them. So David took them off. Yeah, so if you actually read the story of David and Goliath, it's a long story. And there's a huge section on David trying on the armor. It's kind of humorous. It doesn't quite fit. And so he says, no, I know I can't use this armor. What's the point of that? Does it have its own independent point? No, it's too kind of uh, give us a fuller picture of what's going on. That the fact that here we have little David fighting giant professional soldier Goliath. He can't even put on the armor. Right? But it's, the details are there to help fill out the fuller story. Right? And so therefore you have to read history very patiently. It's not like the epistles where in a single verse you can get like three or four different things. A lot of times you have to read four or five chapters before you get the one thing that that story is trying to tell us. Okay, so you have to be very patient. Um, any thoughts or comments? On the rules for reading Ripples of History. I hope that um, in going over these rules, um, it gives you some confidence to read by Biblical history, right? Um, so that you're asking yourself these questions. How does this point to Christ? How does this tell us about salvation? How does this tell us about grace? Right? And then you'll read the way the you'll read the Bible the way Jesus reads the Bible. Right? All the scriptures speak of me. Alright, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that we would be readers of Scripture in a Christ centered way. And Lord, we pray that you would give us the desire to read the Word that it wouldn't be this dry, crusty text, but it would be this exciting, vivid story of your love for us. Uh, Lord, I pray that uh, you would give us the heart, the motivation, the wisdom, and the insight. We pray all this in Christ's name.